The book of Ruth. It's short. There's only four chapters, but it is action-packed with information. It's power-packed. We start our story of Ruth in the time of Judges. So we've just come across, uh, we've just taught through 10 weeks of Judges, so we have an idea. Uh, the time of the Judges, not known for their spiritual strength, not some of Israel's best days. And here's where we find the setting for our story. If you remember the story of Micah and his shrine and, and the, the Levite drifter, that's the era of, of Ruth. That's when Ruth is taking place, concurrent with that. Uh, Ruth is the story of God's people who don't deserve it. It's the story of God's love to people who are outsiders. It's the story of God's love to people who need it. And surely all of us need it now. We feel that need. We always need it, but we really feel it now. Now, if I asked you to name a few of your troubles, I don't think you'd have, have a hard time kind of labeling a few, especially now. We can all, we, we all experiencing troubles, right? And not just lockdown related. I mean, there are lockdown related troubles and those are real, of course, but there's other things that our lives are continuing to go on and there's conflicts and difficulties and all sorts of horrible things that go on with our lives. How, when we're in trouble, when we're in our troubles, how do we process them? How do we deal with them? Some things are consequences of our own actions. Uh, some things are consequences of others' actions against us. And then there's some things that are just the reality of living in a world that's far from perfect. So look, we all go through trouble, all of us. Whether we bring it on ourselves or whether we don't, we will always go through trouble. The problem often is not with the trouble itself, although that's what it's easy to focus on and kind of obsess around. It's often how we deal with it. How do we go through it? By itself, our troubles, no matter where they come from, can easily create bitterness. And bitterness in one area slowly overtakes other areas. It, it like slowly kind of colors the rest of how we see life. It creates a, a hardened shell, turning what should be our soft hearts into hearts of stone. Jesus rescues us in our trouble from our bitterness, and he rescues us from our bitterness and gives us something that bitterness can never give, which is hope. That's what Jesus gives. Jesus gives hope. Hope that love is there for us. Hope that love will prevail. Now, in this story, there's a particular important word for God's love. We're going to talk about this over the four weeks, and it's the Hebrew word chesed. Got to get a good kind of kind of with that one. Uh, it's a big word. There's a lot going into it. I don't know, maybe you haven't heard that word before. That's that means you're a normal person, mostly. Uh, this this word is found throughout the Bible. It's found throughout the Bible. In fact, it's the it's the definition, the title of our of our series here. You can see I'll make it big. God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And that title is unabashedly, unashamedly stolen from uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible, which is by Sally Lloyd Jones. It's amazing. Uh, we've read it with Colin. I can't remember how many times. Now, the book, the story of Ruth is not in this Bible, but the concept of chesed, of God's love, of this kind of, and we'll talk about more of what that love means as it gets unrolled in the story. That love, that never-ending love, it is throughout the Bible, and so it's definitely a theme uh, that we see here in Ruth and all of Scripture. Now, a couple other main themes we're going to see in these four short power-packed chapters. The story moves from emptiness to fullness, from like uh, from a famine to a harvest, right? Emptiness in the people's circumstances uh, to a fullness unforeseen by everybody. 
especially those who are in the first chapter who we'll meet. It creates what what that should do anyway. It should create within us a holy imagination to be able to live for things that we don't yet see, and maybe in our lifetimes we won't see. It's a holy imagination, something that would be an ima- our imagination crafted by God instead of crafted by kind of what we see and how we experience life. This is what's possible with God kind of stuff. Now, in the in the story, there are impressive characters. There are strong, determined, unmarried women, women who have had difficulty and fought through it to get a glimpse of the glory that lies on the other side. And there are people who work for others' good as well. As impressive, though, as these characters are, and as we'll get to see, as impressive as they are, really, what this book is about is how God provides for us, how He provides. In His love, in His never-stopping love, His chesed, in all circumstances. So our God is at work in all things. And when you think, yeah, but is He at work, like, even in that the answer is yes. I don't even know what I don't even need to know what that is. God is at work in that. And let's in our troubles, let's not obsess over the details of the trouble and miss where God is showing us what what he wants to do within us, what he's doing in this world, kind of develop that holy imagination. These people in the story um, also take a lot of risks. This story is about taking risks and and not knowing if the you know what the outcome will be like they're daring they put these people put themselves out there and we can too if we believe that god is at work in all things even that yes whatever that is and taken if we take in the kind of the grand design of the bible from the beginning to the end ruth tells us where obed comes from now maybe you don't know who obed is but that might be helpful to know that because um that's where King David comes from, and maybe you've heard of King David, and ultimately that's where Jesus comes from, and you've definitely heard of him already because we've already mentioned him, which is why we're choosing to go through Ruth during this Advent season. Like, why choose Ruth now? Well, it's about the coming of Jesus, breaking into our world, breaking into our trouble, relieving us from our bitterness and delivering us um, a determination and a grit to take risks, even when they don't seem, uh, when everything seems like it's... um, going horribly. And it's in Jesus that we see God's love, God's loving kindness, his never stopping, never giving up, always and forever, unbreaking kind of love. So we'll look at um, the troubles here to start in the story. We'll see how Naomi reacts in bitterness, and then we're going to see how Ruth reacts in determination. So let's first um, start on this first section here. This is like the first five verses, like the setting of the story. There's trouble. There's trouble. A good story starts with good conflict, and here we are, plunged right in. Now, outside there's trouble. There's famine in the land. Famine is not a good thing, because you starve, especially if you're farmers. These are Israelites who are living in Bethlehem. Now, when a reader at this time would clock the time of Judges, because during the time of Judges is when the reader would know, yeah, not a great part in our history, a bit of a black spot, uh, not not bright. And then there's a famine as well. So there would be an assumption of God bringing his judgment against his people. That's kind of what famine was supposed to be a symbol for. Now remember, when we spent those 10 weeks in Judges, Israel was supposed to be God's people. Uh, they were rarely acting like it. They kept outsiders as outsiders. They try and created those who were inside as outsiders, killing people, murdering each other and raping each other and dismembering people, all sorts of chaos. 
and God had warned Israel already. Like before the book of Judges, God has had warned Israel already. If you go down your own path, there will be consequences. It's not like our, our lives don't matter. Our lives and our actions and our decisions matter. And there's going to be consequences. It's like a father trying to stop a stroppy toddler. Like I was this morning when I was dropping Colin off uh, on the school run. He wasn't super happy with me or the whole world. And he was about to have a tantrum right then and there. And I had to be able to talk him and say, look, if you do that, there are consequences. Or if we compose ourselves a bit, take a breath, ask for forgiveness, you know, there, there are benefits to that as well. This is, what, this is how God talks to Israel as a loving father. So in Leviticus uh, 26, this is a consequence for their bad actions. God is saying, if, if you don't follow me, I will break down your stubborn pride and make the sky above you like iron and the ground beneath you like bronze. Your strength will be spent in vain because your soil will not lead its crops nor will the trees of your land yield their fruit. Basically, you don't listen, famine will come. That's what's going to happen. And God has been very patient with the Israelites. So, most likely, this famine was a symbol of God's consequences, of his judgment. And we'll talk about why that seems to be most likely in a minute. Because not all famines are symbols of God's judgment. Not all natural disasters are like symbols of God's judgment. Now, what we see is this family... Israelite family in Bethlehem, leaving the place God gave them, which is their home, in search of another land. They go to an outside country. They leave God's home for them and go to a place called Moab. Now, when they left, there was a famine, but what they did is they walked into death. They left a famine and they walked into death. Everyone dies right at the beginning, just like a good Disney film. All the men are dead. These women, they're now widows. They have to fend for themselves. And then it was especially difficult because there was security and there was home and there was protection all wrapped up in marriage. It wasn't just merely marrying for love. There was like security and all sorts of like, how am I going to eat now kind of thing. Now, for the, the, these women are now widows. And I, um, for those of you who have lost somebody, a partner or, or even good friends, um, you know that kind of grief. This is the kind of grief that, that our story starts in. For those of you who want to be married and aren't yet, that, and there's that unmet desire, you know that grief too. These women didn't want to be widows, and yet this is where they were. You know, being married, not being married, they both have their unique issues, of course. But this story starts with the difficulty of being alone. That's where the story starts. Now, these men, they were buried in Moab, because that's where these Israelites traveled to, Moab, this outside country. Uh, and to be buried outside Israel, again, is another symbol of judgment. Um, here we have in Amos 7.17. It says, and this is to the Israelites, it says, You yourself will die in a pagan country, and Israel will surely go into exile away from their native land. Being buried outside of your home, the home that God has given you, was a form of exile. Exile is, is a, a, um, a spiritual form of being disconnected from God. Disconnected from God, of being far from Him. Now, let's also, so those are some maybe external troubles. There's famine, people are dying, people are being buried outside places where they ought to be buried. Uh, let's look at some of the internal troubles that are going on here. There are two things to note. First, the, um, the Israelite men who went to Moab, they, they marry women who don't follow Yahweh. And you might say, well, of course, like who else are they going to marry? Well, it was clear that, um, uh, that 
the Israelites were not supposed to marry people who followed other gods. Deuteronomy um, seven seventeen or seven sorry three through four uh, is one of the places where that's clear. It says do not intermarry with them. This is God speaking to the Israelites, talking about all the other peoples surrounding them, specifically Moab where they are. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. So they knew they were not supposed to marry people who didn't follow God because they knew that wasn't a way to grow closer to God. That's a way to grow, um, to, to be far from God. I mean, giving yourself in marriage to people who haven't given themselves to God is a symbol that those people maybe truly haven't really given all of themselves to God yet. But lastly, what we see here also is a... Um, is these women aren't able to have children. And not being able to have children was, at times, also a sign of God's discipline, His punishment against His people for Israel. Now, any of these by themselves, we might think, well, you know, that's just a state of, like, the broken world, right? Just because you aren't able to have children does not mean you're automatically cursed from God. Just because you're going through, just because a famine exists, does not mean you're automatically cursed from God or that God is bringing His curse on you. But, uh, well, and also, add to the fact, the narrator isn't making himself clear. He's not saying, yeah, these people really didn't get it, so here's all the things that happened. The narrator's kind of being a bit, um, you know, he's a bit sneaky. He's not really telling us, really, all that he's thinking here. But, if we take all these together, we take the famine, if we take leaving Israel, if we take being buried outside Israel, if we take people who are supposedly following Yahweh but are marrying people who aren't following um, Yahweh, for people who are also not able to have children, all this kind of builds up on themselves. And the way that it's written, kind of the, the genre, the, the type of story that it is, written to people, God's people, especially us, they would, the original audience would immediately identify this as a symbol of God's judgment against his people. They would get it. Like, okay, things are stacking up here. It's not just a one-off or a one-off thing. There seems to be some kind of theme. So there are external troubles like famine and death, and there are internal troubles. At best, the people in the story are half-heartedly following Yahweh. At, at best, they're half-heartedly following God. At, we know for sure they're definitely not all in. Now, this story starts... As all good stories do, there are problems, like a big twisted knot that just kind of needs to get unraveled. And what starts in verse 6 is the beginning of an answer of making things right again in uh, verse 6 of chapter 1. It says, When Naomi heard in Moab that the, people, uh, that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. So Naomi heard that God was providing for his people in some way. So if God was providing for his people in giving food, surely there's some kind of level of the opposite. God was saying something to his people about not giving food. If God is the one who gives, he's also the one who takes away. So if providing food for Israel was a symbol of God's grace, you'd think the opposite was probably a symbol of discipline. But this is really what kicks the whole story off. Now, what are we to think of God's judgment? What are we to think of it? It's tempting to say, well, this is, you know, the mean God of the Old Testament, and Jesus is the nice God of the New. He's the, you know, the, the hippie God wearing Birkenstocks and um, just hanging out with long hair. But that's a big problem, and often that idea comes from people who haven't really read the Old or the New Testament. Because in the New Testament, there are over 160 references to God's judgment, uh, in, in the New Testament by itself, over, I think, 70 of which 
Jesus himself talks about. So Jesus isn't kind of like the meek and mild-mannered kind of laid-back dude. I mean, he had his t- he had times of being laid-back, but he also had his times of being intense and talking about hell and talking about judgment. So h- how are we to make this? Because we aren't part of uh, ethnic Israel as a political unit, right? We're we're outside of that, and and also this two thousand years and God, the way and Jesus coming changes things. How are we to think of God's anger, God's judgment, God's discipline, all that kind of stuff? Well, let's, let's break it down simply. First, um, let's just kind of limit the, maybe I'll limit the usage to God's anger. How are we to think about God's anger if you follow Jesus? Well, God has different kinds of anger. And for those who have decided that they don't want to be part of God's family, that they don't want to follow God, um, God's anger will ultimately be unrestrained. That's what God tells us about himself. It's like, it's like, say you're married to someone and they continually sleep with other people. They continually talk behind your back. They continually or talk horribly to your face. They continue to try and sabotage your plans. Are horrible and they're abusive to you over and over and over, over years and years. And eventually you will get a divorce. That's what will happen eventually. Now, even the most patient person will end up in that kind of uh, relation, and will end that relationship somehow. Now, ending the relationship is your unrestrained anger. Uh, it's not random. It's a consequence of your horrible partner being horrible. It's a right consequence. Now, they didn't want anything to do with you. They were the ones who were sleeping around. They were abusive and all the rest. And you're just kind of making it final. Like, okay, well, you're acting as if you don't want to be around me. How about we just say you're not around me? And that's how God is with people who don't want to be a part of his family. That's how it is. God said, you don't want to be around me. That Okay, eventually, I will let you have what you want. And I will remove myself from you completely. Eventually, he'll give them what they want, which is always to be separated from God. That's what the Bible calls hell. That's a scary thing. And if we talk about that without fear, without sadness. We're probably not really getting it. Now, things are different for those who are part of God's family. So if you do follow Jesus, uh, you are part of his family, we know that you're not perfect. Um, that you know The Bible says it, and also we all know. We do things we shouldn't, right? And we don't do things we should, all of us. The way God uses his anger here because it's not like he doesn't have any anger anymore, doesn't cease to have that part of his personality. The way that God uses his anger here is, is more like discipline that comes from a loving parent. Because he knows that you want to be in relationship with him, mostly because he's the one who drew you to himself. And all parents want their kids to learn. All parents want their kids to grow, to become whole, mature humans who love Jesus. So when their behavior doesn't match up, there are consequences. You know, when you're little, you get timeouts or you get, you know, you get the removal of something cool, like no TV time or whatever. Now this, when you give your kid a consequence, it's not to make them pay in the best times, but it's so that they won't stay selfish little kids. The same thing for us. The same thing for us. When we make mistakes, God disciplines us in his love to bring us closer to him. He's not trying to make us pay. In fact, he, because he's already paid. Jesus has already paid everything. So God is never, if you're a believer, God will never make you pay. That's not what God is about. God will want you to change. 
Sometimes that feels difficult. Sometimes we'll interpret that as God hates me. But that he's not making you pay. And he doesn't hate you. It's just a wrong interpretation. So when we receive the Lord's discipline, as difficult as it might be, and I know it can be really difficult, the goal for us is to not stay the same, is to grow closer to the Lord. Not stay the same, to grow closer to the Lord. That is the opportunity of trouble. So if we're going to go in trouble, let's use it for the best we can. If not, we end up bitter, and we'll talk about that in a moment. This is a little bit what we what we see, this kind of God's anger against his people is kind of what we see going on here in Ruth. God's people are not acting like God's people, and he doesn't want them to stay that way. The crazy thing here in this book is that Ruth initially isn't part of God's people, but she's determined to be a part of it. She's from Moab. You know, she's she worships other gods. She doesn't worship Yahweh. In fact, Naomi even said, how about you go back to your home and your, your family and worship your other gods and all that kind of stuff. R- Ruth has other gods, other ways of living, and yet God's invitation to her is extended. It's open. What we're seeing is that God's family has been, is always, and will always be open. It's an open embrace from the Father, inviting more to find their home in His arms. Nobody is too far away. Nobody is too bad. And if you follow him, you are not asked to pay. God has paid. Jesus has paid it all. So let's see how these women respond to the Lord when he gives them trouble. And we'll start with Naomi here and talk about bitterness. Naomi's response is bitterness. How did Naomi respond to her trouble? The name Naomi means pleasant, but Naomi is not pleasant. She is bitter, and so she changes her name to Mara. She's like, no, 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 don't call me that anymore. My name's Mara, and that means bitter. She is bitter. Life has been difficult, and she wants life to kind of stay that way. Or she wants to stay that way anyway. She wants to be by herself. She doesn't want to take care of her daughters-in-law. She doesn't want to take care of anybody else. She just basically wants to be bitter and, and isolated and die in order to chase them off. She tells them to go back to their home, go back to the people, go back to their gods. What a great, you know, evangelistic message there. Don't worship God. Go back to your own gods. When we're bitter, we don't care about others' well-being. Being bitter kind of really narrows our view of life. It's all about me and getting through my trouble. And she says in verse 11, like, it's foolish for you to come with me. Like, go away. She says in verse 12, I'm too old to remarry and secure your future. Go away. She says in verse 13, I'm too bitter for you. Go away. Just like when we're in some kind of trouble, she blames everything on God. Look at verse 13, 113. The Lord's hand has turned against me. God's hand has turned against me. She thinks God is not dealing justly with her, even though he's providing something, that she, food that she didn't really deserve. Naomi believes the root of her bitterness comes from God's unjust action towards her. Not anything that she's done, of course. Verse 20. Of, of chapter 1. The Almighty has made my life very bitter. And then we read in the next verse, in verse 21. I went away full, it's Naomi. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. That's not quite right, Naomi. You didn't go away full. You left. There was a famine. You went away empty. And you came back even maybe even more empty. 
There's no real sign of personal ownership over her problems. Regardless of what other people did, where other circumstances were going on, she fails to see her own problems here. And that's really the root of her bitterness. Now, bitterness is one of those things that when we're in it, it is all we see. Like, we read ideas into things that, you know, maybe they're true, maybe they're not, but we can't really be trusted anymore because bitterness is shadowing everything. Others' faults are magnified, ours are minimized. It's like mud on a windscreen, and we're trying to drive a car, but the mud is all we see. And what we desperately need is someone just to click the wipers on or, like, come and, like, unsmudge the windscreen to make a clear path. Bitterness is a stubborn refusal to come to terms with the situation God has us in. Let me say that again. Bitterness is a stubborn refusal to come to terms with the situation that our God has us in. I mean, let's take specifically loneliness. As surely Naomi knows about that. Uh, let's say, if you feel alone, and this can be someone who is married as much as someone who isn't. Marriage doesn't automatically like solve your loneliness problems. In some ways, it might heighten them. If you feel alone, you can easily focus on how much being lonely is horrible, which it is. It really is. Humans were never meant to be alone. That's why God created more than one. But we can end there. And that's what bitterness does. It ends it prematurely. That's the end of the sentence when we become bitter. This is horrible. Full stop. Nothing more. And we stay there for a bit. The longer we stay there, we end up like Naomi. And we say, not only is this horrible, but God, this is your fault. You're the one who did this. You put me here. You gave me this emptiness. You're being unfair. You have no idea. We tell God he, has, he doesn't know what he's doing. Now, all of that can be a good beginning to a prayer. In fact, that sounds like the, a really good beginning to a real prayer. None of those kind of words that we think we should say, but words that are really coming from who we are. That sounds like the start to a real prayer. But bitterness, again, will stop us prematurely. It will keep us in that spot. This is unfair. I deserve something better. You're holding out on me. And what should be a start ends up being the whole thing. Bitterness is a stubborn refusal to go any further. And it will never, bitterness will never lead us to ask questions like, what are you up to in this, God? How can I grow in this? Where am I wrong in this? God, where are you in all this? How can God meet me in my lack? I mean, if you're lonely, how is God meeting you? Are you giving him space for that? If you're experiencing the difficult consequences of your own mistakes, ask God, asking God to teach you what it means to grow in repentance, that's relieving ourselves of bitterness. If someone has sinned against you, asking God for you to grow in humility, to be able to use that for your own growth, all these questions and requests, they get blocked by our bitterness. Now, why? I'll tell It's clear. Because nobody wants to change. Nobody wants to change. In all my years, and you know, I've only been in pastoral ministry, ministry for maybe 15 years or so, um, and, but I think as long as we've been humans, all of us will say, nobody really wants to change. One of my favorite singer-songwriters, his name is David Ramirez, and it's just kind of, kind of throwaway line, people do what they want to. I was like, yep, that's really true. People do what they want to. If I'm at the center... My life is all about me, and what I'll get out of it, then bitterness will be my path. Embracing bitterness allows me to stay the same. Bitterness is a hope killer. There's no room for hope because bitterness ends everything too soon. Our embrace of bitterness will keep us back from seeing and experiencing what God has for us in our trouble. 
If there wasn't any trouble, the story of Ruth would not exist. We wouldn't be reading about it now. We wouldn't be learning from these women thousands of years later. Trouble had to happen for God to reveal himself to them in a way that he wouldn't have otherwise. And this is for us in the moment. Not something in the past, not something in the future. Right now, in the moment. Right here, right now, in the pain itself. We aren't called to deny our pain. Never does the Bible say you should deny your pain. But God joins us in it, and he calls us to more. So that's Naomi's response. What is, what is Ruth's response? Ruth's response is different. It's determination. Now, Ruth is coming mostly from the same difficulties. She's lost her husband. She's lost her father-in-law. She's lost all the security and protection that all that would give as well. In fact, Ruth is facing uh, even more difficulties because now she's only known Moab. She's grown up in Moab. Now she's moving to this new place. They're not like me at all. They worship other gods, different language, different cultural kind of customs, all sorts of things. Leaving for her home to a place she's never been before. I mean, at least Naomi gets to go back to something that she knew and maybe that's something that's familiar. Not Ruth. So what does Ruth do? Well, after Naomi is listing all the reasons for Ruth to leave, we see this in verse 18. Verse 18 says this. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. <laughs> I love this. Naomi's like, stop, go away, stop, go away, stop, go away. And Ruth is like, nope, I'm coming. And there's like, you know, Naomi's kind of like, oh, okay, I guess like I'll just stop and I guess you can come with me. She seems super excited about it, doesn't she? Uh, when Naomi is holding on to bitterness, being held back, Ruth is determined to move forward determined to move forward. And it all comes back to these, these great two verses, verses 16 and 17. Ruth replied, Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. Where did these words come from? Wow, that's amazing. That's amazing. We could spend a whole sermon on those two verses. We're not going to do that. Um, maybe some other time in the future. Ruth, Ruth, you have so many good things. Tell us in here. So many good things to teach. Let, let's learn from her for a bit. First, um, the big picture. What Ruth is doing. This is like a, a transfer of membership from Moab to Israel. Transfer. Her identity was previously of Moab, of this other place. Now her identity comes from Israel. Her identity comes from a commitment to a people. In verse 15, who's Ruth? She's from Moab. Her people are the Moabites. Her God, the gods of Moab. When she dies, she'll be buried in Moab. In verse 16, to the rest of her life, who is Ruth? Well, she's an Israelite. Her people are the Israelites. Her God, the God of Israel, when she dies, she'll be in Israel. She has put herself in the hands of Yahweh. So much risk, so much vulnerability. This is powerful. If the church was full of Ruths, we wouldn't have a problem with risk. We wouldn't have a problem with moving forward. We wouldn't have a problem with committing to each other. Now, a few particular nuggets. I, I just can't help. It would be crazy for us to go through chapter one and not really look at these two amazing verses. Um, so I'm, but I, I will restrain myself. And uh, it, this, I promise, will not be two hours long. So first thing, 
Um, your people will be my people and your God, my God. And if you don't have your Bible open, man, get that thing open. This stuff is so good. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Her, what she's saying, her spiritual commitments are her personal commitments, are her communal commitments. There's no division between any of those things. They're all one and the same. You see that? Your God is my God. And that necessarily means, if your God is my God, that necessarily means your people are my people. We don't get to like pick and choose one or the other. And it's somewhat of a thing, you know, for people to say, well, I love Jesus, but not his church. Or you follow Jesus, but don't commit to his church. Like really like, oh, I'm kind of in when it's convenient, not when, you know, or maybe the other round, other way around. Maybe you're like, people are like, well, the church is really nice, but Jesus, ugh, that's a bit much, right? Don't get, don't want to get too enthusiastic. The Bible makes no such divisions. Ruth is making no such division here. We make those divisions so that we don't have to commit to anything. So we can kind of do what we want to do whenever we want to do it. We want to be free. And yes, without the commitment to Jesus and his church, we are free. We're completely free to drift. We're completely free to worry. We're completely free to live a small life. No one's stopping anybody from living a small life. That's the easiest thing to do. God wants something more for us. Now, the second thing we'll briefly look at here is, May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. Ruth knows less about God than you or I, and yet she probably has more faith than you or me. She's put herself completely in the hands of her Heavenly Father. Not just spiritually speaking, but everything. Her being an Israelite, her connected to Naomi, her... Uh, this is where she will find security. This is where she's going to find friendship. This is where she'll even find food. Her, her emotional needs, her psychological needs, her physical needs, spiritual needs, all of that is in the hands of God. Now, you might hear that and say, well, of course she was going to. Like, what else could she do? She was desperate. That's exactly the point. Ruth recognizes her desperation. That is a powerful thing, to recognize your desperation. And that's what paves the way for her faith, for her determination. We set our lives up to prove ourselves, to prove to others uh, to, that we are not desperate. That's like, you know, that's not something we want to be seen as as desperate. We want to see as people have it all together. Of course, we say, you know, I, I don't want to put a burden on someone else to care for me. That is such a, like, prideful way of acting. We, it, that just really what you're saying is, I don't want other people to care for me, is what you're saying. Our jobs, instead of being how to serve God's kingdom can very easily be about patting ourselves against desperation. We don't think we're as bad off as we are, and yet we wonder why we have a weak faith. Ruth could say this, she understood her desperation. When we understand ours, we can say that too. Now, I've been asked many times why an American would move to England let alone why would someone get involved in starting a new church? Um, because it's not something you do if you want an easy kind of life. And it's not a clear path to success, you know, and how it's often defined. It's a lot of work and often you're alone. Sign me up, right? Well, the pay's good, right? Well, I mean, it's not horrible, but surely there are easier ways to make money, right? There are easier ways to make money. So why? Like, why? What, what got us into doing all of this? Well, we knew we wanted to risk when we went through suffering. 
after we went through suffering. I went through a trial, it's like a literal trial, not just that's not just a metaphor. It's an actual literal trial where my father falsely accused me of a crime that he committed. It was the worst experience of our lives. Those of you who have been around Redeemer for a bit have heard this, so I don't want to repeat myself too much, but I'm more than happy to talk about this. Um, So if you have questions, that's fine. I just don't want to go on and on about my own life. But it actually does apply to Ruth, I promise. Basically, this trial, without a doubt, easily the worst experience of our lives. Our lawyer, who believed in me, uh, completely. I was like, Greg, I know you're innocent, but this is going to be the worst thing you will ever go through your entire life. I was, what, 25 or 26 then, I think. It lasted a long time. It was two years in all. Um, and that's a whole different story. You know, I'm, I'm happy to talk about that some other time. Eventually, the case against me was thrown out because there wasn't any evidence against me. Uh, and now it's as if I've never been charged at all. And thank God for that. It's amazing. But the way we describe describe going through that long, dark valley of not knowing, of betrayal, of thinking that the whole system is against me because everybody minus one, my lawyer, was against me, of bitterness too, really, of anger, depression. All, all We were backed into a corner where the only recourse we had was to rely on Jesus. We were completely desperate for Jesus to take us through. I know desperation. We were desperate. Our desperation led the way to faith, paved the way to faith. If if you don't need to be saved, why would you look for it? If if Jesus' rescue doesn't really matter in your day-to-day life, why would you care about it? Why would you talk about it with others? Well, after the trial... We felt that God had given us some room. Like he backed us into a corner, then he backed up a little bit and said, okay, you got a few feet now, what are you going to do? And if I take a few steps back, give you a little freedom, how are you going to use it? Now, we knew that it was a risk. Um, that uh, we, Well, what, we knew we had to take some kind of risk to move forward. We knew we weren't called to go back into our shell to search after comfort, to kind of like, you know, pad our lives. We knew we weren't going to be able to take that easy road. Um, and for us... That was the first step towards church planting. If that two years plus of desperation and trouble did not exist, we would have never moved the path, got on the path towards church planting, would have never considered moving overseas. And thank God he gave us those experiences, as difficult and horrible as they were, and I wouldn't wish them upon anyone. But thank God he did for us, because they are gifts. And we've needed to rely on him coming through. Remember and rely on those things. We need to rely on on that kind of faith over and over and over again. Now, when I was going throughout the trial, especially the actual trial, I'm in a courtroom, there's judges, there's all sorts of, it's scary when you're the one that everyone is looking at and the accused. I had note cards, note cards in my pocket that I wrote out and I would take out often, like when things became too much, when like even my vision would, would go blurry and it was difficult to see at times. They were all verses about God's love. They were all verses about God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And then there was this question at the top that I would look out often. Do I want my sufferings relieved or do I want God? One of those have to go first. Which one do you want to go first? Sometimes those things feel like they're really far apart. God is in the suffering, though, with us, and he wants to show us who he is. Do you want your sufferings relieved first, or do you want God first, regardless of the circumstances? 
when we're in these desperate places, let's not miss out on what he's doing in us. Going through trials is difficult enough. Let's not add to the tragedy of missing God by not doing the hard work of seeking him. Now to end, let's look back at something that um, Naomi said. Even in her uh, bitterness, she says, May the Lord show you kindness. Oh, I popped that on the screen there. This is Naomi blessing her daughters-in-law, thinking these are the last words that she's going to give them. May the Lord show you kindness. The word for kindness is huge. It's massive. This is the word chesed. God's never stopping, always and forever, unbreaking. I got the title messed up, always and forever love. Um, Let me put this on the screen here. That first line you see here, that's the Hebrew of chesed. And uh, this is, if we were to make it, and turn it into English. We have H, S, D. Hebrew is right to left, and also vowels or dots. Yes, Hebrew is hard. And this is where we get the word, if you go H, S, D, um, this is where we get the word chesed. Just to let you know what it looks like. It's defined as, in um, Hebrew dictionaries, as steadfast love, as the Lord's unwavering loyalty to his people, not the other way around. It's unfailing love. It's devotion. It's a covenantal love, a love that came from God's personal promise to his people. God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. It's never stopping. It's never giving up. It's unbreaking. It's always, it's forever. This is God's pursuit of us. Before we pursue him, he has been and always will be in pursuit of us. Now, just how far will God go? Just how never stopping is this love, supposedly? How how never breaking is it? Like always? Like all the time? Like forever? Like what does that what does that mean? Sometimes if we love someone, we might say we'll be there for them. Or that we'll go to hell and back for them. Like we're dedicated to them. Now Jesus didn't just say that. Jesus did it. Those weren't just words that were convenient or kind of a cliche. It was what Jesus did. He has done it. Past tense. It is done. God's love is already proved for you. You don't need more proof. He gave you his life so that we might have his life. While we were enemies, enemies, while we're enemies, God made things right through his power, on his terms, in his chesed, making whole what was broken, our relationship with him. Through the death of Jesus. That's Romans 5.10, by the way. It's a great verse. We're not going to have time to get into it because we're already long. So we're going to power on. We don't need God to prove himself to us. What we need to do is surrender to the love that has already been proven. We don't need God to prove himself to us. He already has. We need to surrender to that love that he, to the love that's already been proven. To give in to God's never stopping never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Often, I mean, that's maturity, to be able to give in to God's love. So when we face our trouble, only God's love will save us from our bitterness. Only God's love will allow us to live with determination. Beyond our troubles, beyond our experiences here on this earth, there is hope. Hope is in our future. And in our story, we get a slight peek into that hope here with the very last verse, verse 22. The harvest is beginning. The harvest is beginning. You think you're in trouble, and and maybe you are, but don't miss the reality. 
the harvest is beginning. The work of whatever season you have been in, whatever season you're going through, there is a harvest to look forward to. Bitterness tells you that there is no harvest, but the God we serve is the God of the harvest. The God who never runs out on giving to us. The God who is calling us back to him, calling us home. So let's use this Advent season to give up our embrace of bitterness and let's surrender it to God. And as we lean into God's love, we get the determination to move forward. We get the ability to believe, to hope, to rest. You have a Father in heaven who loves you with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. That's what you have. And if we get that, it changes us. It doesn't stop the trouble, but it gives us a determination to move toward hope. Let me pray.